Thanks, Keith. He came back from Texas as fully bearded Keith. Maybe our last update now. I don't know if there's any other, any other variations we can go to, right? <laughs> um, what was that? ZZ Top Keith? <laughs> I think Keith could pull off ZZ Top. Good to see you this morning. Good morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. A couple of family items since it was family holiday time. First one, like my actual family. I've got two pretty sick kiddos at home today and Sydney was really, really insistent that she was coming even though we were telling her, like, you can't go, we can't take the risk of you getting other kids sick. It's just everybody, every parent in the church will be mad at us if you get their kids sick, that sort of thing. Um, but she was, she does not like to miss anything. And so there was a lot of tears and so I worked out this bribe that if they would stay and watch on the computer with Christy, that I would say something to them at the beginning. So you all can just talk amongst yourselves for just a second. Good morning, Emery. Good morning, Sydney. I love you all. Emery, you're my buddy. Sydney, you're my sidekick. Hope that you're watching with Mommy. Thanks for staying home and not getting anybody else sick. Hope you feel better soon. All right, so there was that one. Now, family business for us. It's like any time there's Thanksgiving holidays, there needs to be a thank you. And when family gets together, you know there needs to be an apology, right, for something. Somebody said or somebody did. So here's the thank you. Thank you for sticking with me last week. If you were here last Sunday morning, I know that I talked a whole, whole, whole lot, and you stuck with me till the very end. My apology is I'm sorry for making you sit there that long. Um, I know that, like, every week I violate the social norms of how long this is supposed to last, but last week I violated the violation of the social norms that I've gotten you used to. So I wanted to acknowledge that. I wanted to thank you. And then I wanted to say, there just wasn't enough time last week. So we're going to do Acts 15 again today. Um, I thought, thought, first of all, you need a chance to say what God's showing you in Acts 15. And then there really was a lot more stuff that I feel like there is for us to see and talk about. This is such a significant chapter uh, in the whole Bible, in the book of Acts, in the history of the church. It's so crucial uh, to who the church is going to be and what their message was going to be, um, that there really is just a lot of good reasons to spend a little more time in this chapter this week. So we're back in Acts 15, if you want to turn there. We're going to be looking at the same 35 verses. Um, if we have time, I'm going to connect it to a few other things that we see in the New Testament towards the end. But I want you, seriously, to go first this week and uh, share the things that God's been showing you and saying to you out of Acts 15. So I'm going to pray for us and ask that God will speak and teach by His Spirit as only He can, uh, that we would acknowledge if anything of spiritual significance is going to happen, that we really are completely dependent on God for Him to do it during this time. Uh, and then we'll read Acts 15, and I want you to be listening for what does this teach us about God. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. We know that you are present everywhere all the time and that you are good and gracious to speak to us, to speak to our hearts by your Spirit uh, in all sorts of ways throughout our lives. Um, but we also know, Father, that, that you promise that when we gather in your name and we come to you in prayer and we come to you in your word in the Bible, that you do reveal yourself and speak and teach um, in a unique and significant way for your church. And so we're here right now believing all the promises that you make in Jesus. 
And we ask you right now to teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and then open us up to the truth of your word so that it will penetrate our hearts and that it will change us and that it would stir up inside of us the type of faith that really trusts you and loves you and follows you. Please do the spiritual work right now that only you can do to make us your people and build us into your church and to keep working for your glory and for the building of your kingdom in your world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Acts 15. This will be on the screen, but also if you want to turn there and read along. What's this teach us about God? But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with their words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, 
having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right. I really am going to try to give you more time this week. What stands out to you, what's God saying to you, especially truths about who God is, how he works, um, and then also what he's saying to our hearts today. You go first. God is greater than laws and customs. And you know, he had set up these laws within Israel, um, for Israel, to set them apart as his people in the Old Testament. But I think it is significant to see that he's still at work beyond that, outside of that. He's bigger than that. Uh, that he's not limited by that, that his gospel goes farther than that. What else? God is for everybody. And every time that we run into a truth like this, I do this in Acts, just because I think it's really good for us to think intentionally and specifically about what does everybody mean, especially in the context of the church and of the gospel and of Acts. You know, when we're saying everybody... The, the thing that's getting emphasized so much here is every race, every nation or nationality, right? every culture, that all the racial, national, cultural differences that would have separated the Jews from the rest of the world, the non-Jews who are the Gentiles, all those things that would have separated them did not separate them when it comes to the gospel. That the gospel was for every race for every nation, for every culture, that all of that secondary stuff that we treat as primary, the things that we think distinguish us from one another and make us so different from one another, it all gets blown up by the gospel. And I don't mean blown up in a way where it doesn't matter, but rather that there's a place within the gospel for every race, for every nation, for every culture to come and bring glory to God in their own cultural expressions and their own national expressions, their own racial expressions, and for us to be united in a way in the gospel where we are more the full people of God that God really intends especially when you look in, in the book of Revelation and this vision that John gets of heaven of every tribe, tongue, people, and language worshiping God together and praising God together around the throne in heaven forever, that that's where this whole thing's headed, that that's what God intends for him to receive glory and worship from the entire world and that he brings that about. He does that for himself in the gospel by making the gospel available to all people. 
that the only thing that distinguishes anyone is, is there faith in Jesus or not? Are you united to Jesus or not? That that's what defines your identity on the deepest level. Not your race, not your culture, not your nationality, which allows us, first of all, to not be divided by race and culture and nationality if we really believe the gospel. But then it also allows us to embrace one another and celebrate one another. Even sometimes, and this may be like totally not politically correct, but I'm like in a really lighthearted, fun way, right? Because it... When, when my identity is in my race or culture or nationality, if you attack that or even make fun of that in a certain way, I'm going to get really, really offended because you're threatening my identity. But if that's not my identity and my identity is in Jesus, I can laugh about all the little things that are, are quirky about me, about my background, and we can all do that together. And it's weird to me how much we struggle with that sometimes in the church. When my experience growing up, that wasn't the case in the sports world. Like we could all, like I played with all kinds of different races and cultures and we all could make fun of each other and have a good time together because really what united us was a sport. Like we were all football players together or basketball players together. There was something else that brought us together and so like race, culture, nationality wasn't a threat to that and we could enjoy that with each other. And I think that's part of what we really do see in the Bible of hey, we Jews and Gentiles are as different as anybody can be, right? Historically, culturally, nationally, racially. But there's something that happens in the gospel where they say the thing that we have in common in Jesus, our desperate need for a Savior, our recognition of the blackness and darkness and sin in our hearts, and our celebration of the fact that Jesus meets that entire need, all that's bigger than anything else that defines us. And so that stuff gets out of the way, and now we really can be united, and we can enjoy our differences in a way that's not threatening to our identity because Jesus is our identity. Like, all that is packed and God is for everybody, every race, every nation, every culture. And that also is what drives missions. The, the, the gospel itself sets us free to reach other cultures, other nations, other races, to cross cultures, to, to say, you know what, I can go and identify with them. I don't have to hold on to all my cultural identity. I can go and identify with them and share my life with them And because I want them to have the gospel, and the gospel set me free from my cultural background so I can enter into theirs, And which is exactly what we see happening in this chapter when, first of all, the Jews are accepting the Gentiles in and saying, you know what, there's all sorts of cultural baggage that tells us not to do this, but God's made it clear in the gospel that we should, so we welcome you in. And then they turn right around and write a letter to the, the Gentiles like, hey, there's some cultural baggage for the Jews that we need you to acknowledge so that we can keep reaching the Jews with the gospel. And they're both free then from their national and cultural background to live out the gospel and love each other in the gospel and to spread the gospel the way that Jesus had called them to do, that the gospel is the power for spreading the gospel that God is doing all of this in his people, for his people, and then through his people. What else stands out to you? Truths about God. Yeah, so this, this message of Jesus, period. You know, like this big period right here, just Jesus. And we could say just Jesus, 
Only Jesus. Jesus alone. Like that's, that is what's at stake here in Acts 15. Will that be the message of the church? Jesus, period. Nothing else. Or will it be Jesus and, Jesus plus? You've got to add stuff to Jesus. Jesus isn't enough by himself. Jesus didn't do it all for you. You've got to do some of it too. What will be the message of the church? And, and right here, the, the observation is that the message of Jesus, period, or just Jesus, however you want to say it, that it fulfills the two great commandments. When Jesus, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And he, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandments and love your neighbor as yourself, that the message of just Jesus, the, the true gospel message that God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, is the only message with the power to change our hearts in such a way that we can actually fulfill these two commandments, to love God with everything we are and to love our neighbors ourselves. Because first of all, when it's just Jesus, like to declare just Jesus is to love and worship Jesus in a way that's exclusive for him. Right? You're saying that, that God does something in Jesus that nothing else can do, that God has a place of ability and power and grace and honor that nothing and no one else has and nothing can be added to him. That, that the actual act of believing this message is glorifying to God. That this is an expression of love to God. We said, this is who God is. This is how great he is. This is why we adore him. But then also the message of just Jesus says, you know what? Even though your hearts are rotten and black and filled with sin and you could never ever love God in this pure way where you give all of yourself to him, even though you would always fail and always fall short, guess what? God's done that for you in Jesus. And God gives that to you in Jesus. And God reaches inside of you and he takes out your heart of stone and he replaces it with a soft heart of flesh and he sends his spirit to come live inside of you. And his spirit starts to produce his fruit in you. And part of that fruit is love. And so now you can love God, not because you can love God, but because Jesus the Son loves the Father that way and his spirit lives in you and he's producing his love in you and any time that you rely on him and you turn to him in prayer and you turn to him in faith, he gives to you what he commands of you. He says, love God with all your heart. You can't, but I'll give it to you. Like this is the only way it happens in your heart. And then love your neighbor as yourself. We talked last week and we can circle back to it this week if you want to. But when, they're, when these people, these early believers, these early disciples are set free from I've got to work and achieve and earn and, and earn approval. When I've got to do all that to prove myself, to justify myself. That all my religion, ultimately really what it's about is making myself good enough. Proving that I'm good enough. Achieving for the sake that you'll think I'm good and God will think I'm good and everybody will be impressed with me and I'll feel good about myself self, which is like all the natural religion that flows out of our flesh and out of ourself. It's always about us. It's so selfish and so self-centered and driven and motivated by us achieving and us approving and us earning and us being good enough. And the gospel shreds all that, crucifies it. The gospel says that's not necessary and that'll never save you. And it sets you free from that. It says, Jesus has done it all. There's not a single thing that you have to do in order to be saved. The things that you do, there'll be things that you do, but they won't be to earn God's approval and favor and love. They won't be to save yourself. They won't be to set yourself apart or to justify yourself. You can die to everything that's about you. And then for the very first time, if you die to everything that's about you, you can love somebody else. But you can never love somebody else when it's about you. Love is completely self-giving. 
other-directed, other-focused. It flows out of you to them. And so this Jesus alone, Jesus period message, when you believe that for the very first time because of his work in you, you can love God the way that he calls you to. And for the very first time because he sets you free from yourself, you can love other people the way that he calls you to. That in his gospel, he's giving to you what he commands from you. That it is him and him alone. And that any time that you come up short, the answer is not to look to yourself and make another resolution and dig in and try a little bit harder and say, well, I know I messed up this time, but this time I'll get it right. That's not the answer. The answer when you come up short is to look to Jesus and say, I admit it. You know this about me. You told me in the gospel that I always come up short and I believe you and I believe that you're enough. Give to me what you want from me. Let me live by the power of your spirit in me right now. You, you be the love in me. You be the grace in me. You be the patience in me. You be the kindness in me. You be the humility in me. I don't want mine, and I don't want a better version of mine. I want yours. And you've promised to give it to me, and I believe you, so I'm asking right now. That, that's the flip from I'm doing all this stuff to earn something from God versus I'm doing all this stuff because Jesus has already promised to give it all to me from him. Like up for, he's made me his people. He claimed me. It's something he did, a decision he made. He claimed me, and I believe him. And so now I live differently because of what he's doing in me. Verse, I'm doing all this so maybe he'll accept me. Like one of them's not the gospel at all, and that's what's at stake again here in Acts 15. And listen, it creeps in over and over and over in your heart, in your flesh, in the church, in the world, everywhere. The natural message is you do so that. And the gospel message is God has done, therefore. Now, did you hear the difference of those two things? Like You do all your good stuff so that God will love you and accept you. That's not the gospel. God loves you and accepts you and he's done everything for you. Therefore, you can be changed, you can be different. His spirit can produce this in you. What else? Good. This is the other reason why the gospel has to be deeper than just external religious activities, that you can have all the religious behavior in the world and look good on the outside, and none of that can penetrate your heart. That it takes a supernatural work of God, a spiritual work of God, where his spirit comes and dwells inside of you and changes you from the inside out because God is focused on the heart. Down here, Peter, when, he, when God first chooses the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's your heart that needs to be clean, not just your behavior. Right? The reason that your behavior is rotten is because your heart is rotten. But the problem is you can clean up your behavior and make it look good, and that doesn't penetrate to your heart. That only God can do the internal heart work. And if he ever cleans up your heart, it'll start to work its way out. It will change your behavior. But again, it's this. Like the order is what matters so much here. Is there a work of God that starts this whole thing and therefore has the power to carry it out? Or is it a work of you that starts on the outside and can never penetrate inside? What else? Discipleship is active. I like that. Discipleship is active. 
And for both of these, where I think we're headed later, we're going to swing back to them. Um, so I'm going to try to like reel myself in right now. But discipleship is active. Like this is something that they're, they're living out. Like It's really hard for me to resist, but I'm going, okay, 20 seconds and then we'll come back to it. The gospel is not just something where they say, hey, we believe the gospel. Like they don't just repeat the message, right? Like grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, we all believe that. Good. It has to affect what they're doing and how they live and how they interact with one another and what they expect of one another and what their relationship is. Right? It has to be something that they understand to an extent that they know this is what it looks like to live it out, not just to parrot it. Right? Like I, can treat, I can teach a parrot to say the gospel, and it does not understand it at all. And I'm afraid that a lot of times we do something really, really similar to that in church with one another. We say all these things and repeat them after each other, but it doesn't penetrate our hearts and it doesn't change our lives. And it's not this active thing where we're saying, hey, we're going to live life together in a way where we're constantly reminding each other of what it looks like if the gospel's true, how this changes us, how this changes our relationships with each other. What else you got? God calls us not to be judgmental. And this is a key word in that truth because what I would say about judgmental, like if we we're going to try to define it in a way that's helpful to us in categories, judgmental is when you set yourself up as judge and you set the standards. That, that you're assuming a position of authority for yourself and you think, you know, what I think or what I believe or what I feel, that should dictate for other people what they should do, how they should live, and I'm going to judge them based on my standards. You know, it's the Pharisees saying, you have got to keep the, the Jewish law, even though you're not a Jew. That's a, you know, let's think about what's really going on here. You're not a Jew, but you've got to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. Like I, I've, I've declared, you've got to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. And nowhere, here's the key, nowhere has God said that. As a matter of fact, as Peter says in Acts 10, God said the exact opposite of that. He sent Peter to the Gentiles, no prerequisites that the Gentiles become Jews first. And then when Peter speaks the gospel, they hear it and believe God immediately sends his spirit on the Gentiles, saying that he accepts them, he approves of them, he has saved them based on the gospel alone and not on the Jewish law. And so nowhere has God said what these Pharisees are saying here at the beginning of Acts 15. But they have set themselves up as the standard, the judge, instead of saying, no, God's the only one. Now, when we say God calls us to not be judgmental, here's the reason I underline judgmental. That doesn't mean that there isn't truth. It doesn't mean that there's not absolute truth. It doesn't mean that there are some things that are true for everybody, and there are some things that are not true for anybody. There are some things that everybody should believe. There are some things that nobody should believe. It just means you're not the one who determines that, <laughs> Right? It's not your place. It's not your message. But God is. And so in this very same chapter where we say, hey, you can't come to people and require things of them that God doesn't require. You can't come to people. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't, right? You shouldn't come to people and put a burden on them that God's not putting on them. You shouldn't come to people and set up this whole checklist of requirements. If you do this, God will approve of you. God will love you. When God's saying, you don't have to do that to earn my love. Like for you to come and give people a message that's not from God, that's judgmental. But at the very same time, 
We see Paul and Barnabas get really, really worked up in their response to these judgmental Pharisees. And they're like, no, what you're saying is not true. No small dissension and debate. And they're willing to fight for the truth, and they're willing to say, that is not true, and we will say what is true over and over and over. But the key is, they're saying what God has said to them. See, it's not Paul and Barnabas who are the authority here. It's God who's the authority. He's jumped through so many hoops, if you want to say it that way, to reveal to the early church that he's accepting everyone. The whole deal with Peter and the sheep from heaven three times and the angel coming to Cornelius and then sending the Holy Spirit in such a dramatic way on the Gentiles and having all these Jews there to witness it happening. Just like everything that he's done, God has spoken clearly. And so to reject that, to say, no, that's not going to be our message, is to reject God. To accept that is to accept God. And so Paul and Barnabas aren't setting themselves up in this place of arrogant authority. This is a humble submission to God. God has said this, and so we're not going to move from this. And whoever says something different, we will oppose them because they're opposing God. And so don't be judgmental. It doesn't mean that we don't ever speak up. It doesn't mean that we don't ever say, no, this is the truth. This is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus says. This is what the Bible says. There's all sorts of places for us to say that, but we say it out of a place of humility and submission to God, just saying, we can't go anywhere else. We have no other message except God's message. We have nothing else to say except what God says. And so we won't set ourselves up and say something different than God, because that would be judgmental. But we also won't be silent when other people say something different than God because we know that God has told us to say something. God has spoken. So, instead of setting yourself up as judge and you set the standards, you humbly submit to God as judge and you trust his standards. It's Peter saying, hey, if God has accepted them in this way, who are we to say otherwise? Like, who are we to put a burden on them that God hasn't put on them? It's his, he's the one that sets the standards, not us. What else stands out to you? Yeah. Phil's opening up a can of worms for us. Um, There's definitely some ambiguity, if you'll let me use that word, in the way that this plays out through the rest of the book and in Paul's life. Like these, these four requirements that they give to the Gentiles. And again, I think they're really clear here. They're saying, look, God's already accepted you. There's nothing that you have to do to be accepted by God. But here's their reason for giving the four requirements. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, in all these different cities, the law of Moses is being read, all these Jews are gathering, and you Gentiles, you know what the Jews believe. And you know how these things, especially these four things that are associated with idol worship, um, you know how offensive they are to the Jews. And if we're going to have any hope 
of reaching the Jews in these predominantly Gentile cities, we're going to need Gentile Christians who live in a way that at least opens the door that the Jews might be able to associate with them. The only way the Jews can hear the gospel from you as a Gentile is if you live in a way where a Jew might come into contact with you as a Gentile. And we know if you're doing these four things that the Jews are never coming into contact with you. They're just not going to. And so these laws recommendations were not given as a do this in order for you to be saved. It was do this so that the Jews might be saved when you share the gospel with them. Like you already have the gospel from God, and this is the most likely way that you'll be able to give the gospel to the Jews. So we understand that piece. Now, like if you really like if you want to see how murky it gets, the very next chapter we're going to get into. Like I mean Paul and Barnabas basically go to war over they don't have to be circumcised right like they call a meeting of the entire leadership of the known church at that time to settle this issue in chapter 15 do you know what paul does in chapter 16 when timothy comes with him on a missionary journey he circumcises him (laughs) like put those back to back what in the world right we've just fought tooth and nail to say that you don't have to do this and he turns right around and says hey why don't you do this before you do you know why because he knew that he was going to be going into the synagogues. He was going to be interacting with a lot of Jews. Timothy was half Jewish, and his thinking was, this will make them more receptive to Timothy. It's not because it's not so that Timothy will be saved. It's so that Timothy has a chance to share the gospel in a way that the Jews might be saved. And so it's almost like Luke is intentionally, immediately giving us an example where he's saying, hey, these issues, these issues that they're saying aren't primary, they're really not primary. They're so not primary that they're not going to define you in either direction. Now, I think we have to take chapter 15 in that context where all they're talking about right now is how is the gospel going to spread from a primarily Jewish beginning to the Gentiles, and then as it reaches the Gentiles in the world, it has a better chance of reaching the Jews who've been scattered throughout the world as well. How do we handle those distinctions? That's what they're focused on right here. Now, outside of that, there are all sorts of other behaviors and lifestyles that we would say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like, this is consistent with the character and nature of God. This is not consistent with the character and nature of God. And so when it comes to food sacrifice to idols, you know, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul's addressing that, and he's saying, hey, this is always a secondary matter. Like, if you're a believer, if you're really strong in your faith, you know those idols aren't real, and you know that ceremony didn't mean anything, and that food is still just food, and you can eat it, and it doesn't affect your conscience at all. But if it does affect your conscience, if you're still struggling in your faith in a way where you're tempted toward idol worship, or if you're around other people who are going to misinterpret what you do, and it's going to lead them away from God and lead them to idol worship, just don't eat it. Not because you can't. Right? Not, not because you can't, not because your salvation depends on it, but just because you won't, because you love them and you want to reach them with the gospel. So that's how he deals with that in, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But in 1 Corinthians 6, he deals with sexual immorality in a different way because it's not just a cultural expression. He ties it all the way back to creation. He says God has created in a certain way when he created Adam and Eve and he created marriage and he has an intention for marriage and it's a picture of Jesus in the church and your body now belongs to Jesus when you're one with Jesus. And so that's always true across the board no matter what because of who God is, but it's still connected to the nature of God. And so probably their motivation here for including sexual immorality in this list in Acts 15 has to do with idol worship. 
But there's also other reasons to forbid that that are connected to who God is that we see other places in the New Testament, which, and I'll quit on this, it's why it's so important for you to be reading the Bible all the time on your own and to read in a way where you let every part of the Bible speak to the rest of the Bible and you say, hey, this is one big story. The whole thing's about God and who he is and what he says here informs what we understand here. And if I understand this piece better and this piece better and I put it together better, it helps me understand the whole thing better. And when I've got a clearer understanding of the whole thing, then that helps me better interpret each part. And as I better understand each part, that helps me better understand the whole thing. It's a lifelong journey of us coming together, studying together, praying together, and then us going and continuing to study on our own and ask the Spirit to speak to us and continue to put that together and to keep saying, you know what, the only thing that will tell me how to understand the Bible is the Bible. That's it. That'll be the authority. Like, God, if there's something I don't understand, if there's something you don't understand, just keep going. (laughs) Just keep going. And I promise you, probably before you expect it, he'll say something somewhere else. That'll, you'll, you'll, oh, that's what that was. That's how that clicks. And then there's going to be stuff you're, just, you're not going to get. And it may just, he may say, hey, you, you don't need that yet. You're not ready for that yet. There's going to come a time when I'll show that to you. But it is a lifelong journey of us following Jesus together, studying the Bible together, praying together. And also that as you're doing this throughout the week on your own with other people and in small groups, when we come back together in here, we all get the benefit of everything that God has said to all of us throughout the week. If we'll come together and say, hey, God's giving me stuff to share today, not just me, like us. Anyway, yes, there is, there is tension and ambiguity. And, and uh, since you said that, I've been trying to decide, what do I say today, what do I not? If it's Acts 15 again next week, it's your all's fault, right? But... You know, we did that Jesus, not Jesus list last week. Like if, you, if it's Jesus alone, the true gospel, here's some of the things that means. Verse Jesus and, Jesus plus, and some of the things that means. And One of the things I had written down that I hadn't um, said yet, and I'm just going to go ahead and we'll, we'll start the list again this week because we may get to it some. So just Jesus, Jesus and is that one of the things that we see here in Acts 15 when you're believing a gospel that is just Jesus, grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, is that you're now led by wisdom. Because, and what I mean is, there's not this, like, there's not this list of rules that is cut and dry for every situation. Because when you just have a list of rules that's cut and dry for every situation, then all you do is you follow the rules. You don't need Jesus, right? Like, you know what makes me pray almost as much as anything? Walking into a situation where I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't figure it out. Like, maybe this is the best thing. Maybe this is the best thing. And I just don't know. And I'm not going to know up front. Until I make the choice, I won't know. I'm too finite, I'm too fallen, I'm too fallible, I'm I'm too ignorant, and I can't know. And it's like, God, you know, and you see all of it. Please speak to me and lead me by your Spirit. And I become dependent on the Spirit to do things that I can't do. And, and, And what we hope we're asking, based on what we see in Acts 15, is how can I best live out the gospel? How can we best advance the gospel? What decision will be best for the gospel? I need you to show me. And now we're following Jesus. We're depending on Jesus because you would think that the apostles really might say, hey, we can't send them these four recommendations or it's going to undermine the message we just said about you don't add anything to Jesus. 
But I think you see them saying, no, we really are being led by the Spirit, and we believe the Spirit. They said, it seems good to the Spirit and to us, is the way they said it. That we're being led by the Spirit to say, this will be best for the gospel. This will help the gospel advance among the Jews in the best possible way. And so wisdom tells us, we're going to send you these four things. Now, this isn't a list of rules for you to follow. These are recommendations for how you can better live out the gospel. But it requires wisdom on, part of the, on behalf of the leaders to say, yeah, we're going to give you this, but, but these, the, the Jewish law, the law of Moses, circumcision, we're not giving you that list. And so it's wisdom instead of what I would call moralism, where it's just, here's what's right and what's wrong in every situation. You don't ever need to ask God again. There's nothing else you need to think about. There's nothing else. You just you memorize this list and you stick to this list and it's enough. And so over here we would say this is from the Spirit. This is actual dependence on the Spirit. This is dependence on a list. And then this allows us to live from a place of love where we're saying, okay, I know that, that I, I can eat food sacrificed to idols because Paul says it clearly in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. I know I can, but I'm not going to because I love the Jews and I want to reach them with the gospel. It's not because there's a list telling me I can't. It's not because I can't. It's just because I won't for their sake. So I get to live out of love instead of self-righteousness. Instead of self-justification. What's that? Oh yeah, or obligation, yeah. Like I, I have to do this because this is what makes me right. No, like I'm freed from that because Jesus is what makes me right. And now I'm free to really live from a place of love where I'm asking the Spirit to show me what's the wisest thing I can do for the gospel in this situation. And so this is... All that gray stuff in your life where you're like, the Bible doesn't talk about this specifically. All that stuff. Now, there is black and white stuff. But there's, you know, how much insurance should you have? You didn't think I was going there, did you? <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> but really, because here's the deal. I can make an argument that is really wise and really prudent to have every kind of insurance policy you can imagine. Maybe it is. Or is that a lack of faith on my part? Is that me trying to control certain things that I can't control? Am I being wasteful in a way that I'm spent and greedy? I'm spending money on my own security that I could be given to missions. You know, now it's muddy all of a sudden. I'm going to cancel my insurance policy. I'm not telling you that either because at what point are you being foolish? I don't know. You know why? Because you need this. The wisdom spirit to help you live out a life of love and not just a list. I just can't stand up here and give you a law and say this percentage of your income goes to insurance. I can't tell you that. I can't tell you yes or no. I don't want to because I'm not the Spirit. And the thing is, there may be certain situations where he tells you something different because there isn't, there is not like a level of morality attached to that decision that is just absolutely the same all the time. Do you see what I mean there? Should you own a gun or not? Should you wear a mask or not? I mean, that, like we've, we absolutize this stuff Instead of saying, this, we need to pray and we need to be dependent on the Spirit. We need to ask the Spirit to give us wisdom. And it may be that what he tells us in this situation isn't in this situation, but they're both growing out of the same root of love. And I don't wanna, I'm not trying to muddy the waters this morning. What we would say like, is really good, just summary, that we need to have unity in the essentials. Like, there are primary things, and we see that in Acts 15 today. I'll just write this down underneath and we'll start our list later. Unity in the essentials. 
that there's not a place here in Acts 15 where like, well, maybe the Spirit is telling the Pharisees that they should require the Gentiles to be circumcised. No! It's not the gospel. And it's dishonoring to Jesus. And there is no room to tolerate these essential things. That's why we always start with who God is, because who God is is essential. And so when these essential matters of who God is and how he has revealed himself and who he's shown himself to be in the gospel, there's no room for negotiation. There's no room for compromise. It is as black and white as it gets in the entire world. Unity in the essentials. But there's freedom. And the, you can call them non-essentials or the secondaries. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul's writing to two groups in Corinth where he says, hey, some of you, you're weaker brothers. You don't really understand the freedom that you have in Jesus yet. And so you feel like you can't eat this meat. Some of you, you're, you've grown strong on the gospel and you know the freedom that you have and, and you, you know that you can eat the meat. And one of the things he says is, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Just, that's fine. If that's where your conscience, like if God, if this is where God has brought you so far and you're understanding living out the gospel, then do it. And if God's brought you here, then do it. And then he comes back to the stronger brothers and he says, even though that you know you're free to do it, don't anyway for the sake of the weaker brothers and bring them along with you. And that's the last thing. But the freedom and the non-essentials is Paul, he's just saying, you know what? Your faith doesn't rise and fall on whether you eat that meat or not. Your faith rises and falls on Jesus. And so this, this meat issue is a non-essential thing, and there's freedom. There's freedom for you to think you should, freedom for you to think you shouldn't. Love in all things. We've got to agree on the essentials, and we, uh, here, we love each other by insisting on the essentials. Do you see that with Paul and Barnabas today? Like it would not be loving to the Gentiles, and it would not be loving to these Pharisees if we let them keep believing a false gospel. The way we love them is by insisting on it is Jesus alone. But then also here, when we disagree in the non-essentials, okay, so what? The non-essentials aren't what define us. That's not our identity. That's not driving. So, so we disagree on some things. Great. You know, some of my best friends in the world are people that I disagree with the most. And I enjoy that. Like I, I, to, to be able to banter back and forth and for them to call me out when I'm wrong and me to, because, by the way, we're getting, I hope, we might get there today. If not, we're just going to do it next week. But we're getting ready to look at how Paul does this with Peter and Barnabas both in a loving way where he's saying, hey, we've got to talk through what's going on here. So back to this. Let's just go ahead and go right now. Here we go. You got me on the list. Jesus, not Jesus. We'll come back down here. So I added these. I just thought Acts 15 is long. Like it's 35 verses, and I know I've talked a lot. And you... When I do this in a minute, you may be like, why didn't you just do this to start with? Like, there's two verses in Romans 2 where Paul boils this whole thing down. Like, he takes 35 verses and he's like, here's the two verses. And right here they are. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So it's not those things. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And this is a summary of the whole thing we're talking about. Here's the difference between Jesus alone versus Jesus and. Jesus and is outward, Jesus alone is inward. 
Jesus and is physical. Jesus alone is spiritual. Jesus and is a matter of your works. Jesus alone is a matter of the heart. Jesus and is a work of the law. That's what by the letter means there. Jesus alone is a work of the Spirit. Jesus and is focused on man. I do these things externally so that man will praise me. Jesus alone is focused on God. And it's, I want people to praise me. I only care about God's praise. All that's in two verses. And all that's the difference of this natural religion that starts on the outside and can't ever penetrate your heart versus this work of God that he does by the Spirit of Christ inside of you. That this is your work over here. And all you can do is outward, physical, works of the law, focused on man so that people will praise you. This is God's work over here. And it's inward and spiritual and a matter of the heart and a work of the Spirit that's focused on God and cares about God's praise. You can say, this is your work. This is God's work. We could also say that this is shallow, hollow, superficial, and I mean like surface. Now that you can do all this stuff on the outside, but it can't penetrate. But this, this is inside out. That God starts on the inside and it does work its way out. But he's primarily concerned, like first and foremost, with changing your heart, changing the actual root of the tree so that over time a good tree grows out of that root and bears good fruit. But if you come along to a bad tree and you keep hanging fake apples on it, that doesn't make it a good tree all of a sudden. The exact same thing here in Colossians 2. In him, meaning Jesus, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. All right? Not a human work, not an outward physical work, not a work of man. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, that he cut off your sinful nature, that he's changing your heart, that he's actually changing who you are in the depths of your being. He's changing your nature from, from a sinner to a saint from someone who is far from God and separated from God and living by self to someone who's united with God in relationship with God and living by the Spirit. That this is the work of Jesus. This is how he builds his church. This is how he makes his people. And, and the last place today, in Galatians 2. So here's what happens. I mean, and this is so good for us. This goes back to discipleship being active. This goes back to living out the gospel. After this Acts 15 deal, They send the message to the Gentiles. And they're like, hey, you don't have to be a Jew. 
and Jews and Gentiles in Jesus can freely associate. And you don't have to keep the Jewish laws for the Jews to accept you because you don't have to keep the Jewish laws for God to accept you. That's the message. And so Paul, Barnabas, they go back to Antioch. We read about that in the chapter. Well, at some point, Peter comes for a visit to Antioch. And he's living out this message is how it starts. Listen to what happens here in Galatians 2. But when Cephas, that's Peter, by the way. Cephas means rock. Peter means rock. Just two different languages. But when Cephas came to Antioch, and this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Would you not like to see that? Like, like, I mean, like the two heavyweights of the book of Acts. And Paul's like, I'm not backing down just because it's Peter. I'm not going to act like this isn't a big deal because it's the gospel. We're going to do this face-to-face. We're going to talk through this. Now, here's what happened. For before certain men came from James, which this is from Jerusalem. James is kind of the head in Jerusalem at this point. This is where the Pharisees are with their message of you've got to obey the Jewish law. So before those people came down to Antioch, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. So he's living out the gospel. He said, okay, I believe this. I don't have to separate myself from the Gentiles. I can be one with them because of the gospel. But when these people come, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So it's the fear of man. He's afraid of what they're going to think of him, what they're going to say about him. He's afraid of how he's going to look in their eyes. He's back to, I want the praise of man and not the praise of God. He's back to, this. I'm defined by the stuff that these people think about me instead of being defined by what God thinks about me. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, so he pulls the rest of them along. Like, if Peter's going to do this, we're going with him. That's how influential he is and whether or not he lives out the gospel. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I mean, here's, like Barnabas has gotten it right from day one in Acts, right? Like he's the one with the, the much grace in Acts 4 where he sells his property and gives all the money to the church. He's the only one going to get Paul when he's first converted and believing that he should show grace to Paul. He's the one bringing Paul to Antioch. That starts. He's the one on the first missionary journey with Paul. He's the one fighting for the gospel in Acts 15 along with Paul. And he can still miss it. And I just, just as a side note right here, listen, we can all miss it. Like you're not going to arrive You're not going to come to a place where I've got it all together and I'm good to go now and I don't need Jesus today. You're never going to get to that place. And you are going to miss it sometimes. And the question will be, when you miss it, do you run back to Jesus or do you start trying to defend yourself and justify yourself and explain why what you did is okay? Will you confess and will you repent and will you run? Like, Will you believe the gospel is the answer when you miss the gospel? That's one side note. You're not going to get it right all the time. And that is not a prerequisite not for you to follow Jesus, and not for you to be part of this church. You do not have to get it right all the time, but you have to believe that Jesus gets it right all the time. And you have to believe we'll just keep running back to him, and when we see somebody not getting it right, we're going to bring them back to him. And we're not done with them just because they get it wrong. Like Paul's not done with Peter. It's like, you're getting it wrong, I'm done with you. Right? No, I'm going to come face to face, and I'm going to oppose you, and I'm going to remind you of what the gospel really is. That's one thing. The other, the other side note here, I mean, these are three huge leaders in the church, right? Peter, Paul, Barnabas. In this particular chapter, two of the three get it wrong. Your leaders are going to get it wrong. We're going to make the wrong decisions sometimes. We're going to mess stuff up. We're not going to live the gospel out the right way. And, and I feel like I know our elders well enough to speak for all of us right now at this point and just tell you, we don't want to project some image to you where we would even pretend that we're going to get it all right. 
Like your ultimate confidence and faith is not in us, it's in Jesus. That Jesus can build his church. And listen, we want to follow Jesus. And we pray to follow Jesus, and we're going to try to follow Jesus. And I, I hope that by the grace of God, we, we get it right more than we get it wrong. But we're not going to get it right all the time. And when we don't, I hope that we'll just be honest with you. Say, hey, we tried this, we messed this up, we, we thought this would work, it didn't work, whatever it is. We're not going to get it right all the time. Also, what we see right here is why it is so important to have a multiplicity of elders and leaders. Right? When Peter gets it wrong, we need Paul coming and say, hey, you're getting it wrong. When I get it wrong, I need Adam and Keith coming to me and saying, hey, you're getting it wrong. Like you said this, and maybe this is not even what you meant, but it came across this way, this is what we heard. Like, I, and I think they both know that they've got that freedom in, in each of us to say that to each other. And it's the same way, it's why you need to be in a small group. Like the same thing that we're saying in leadership is true for all of us. Like you need people speaking into your life regularly and hearing what you're saying. And small group, if I can just throw this out there, community groups should not just be everybody saying, oh, that's a great thought, that's a great thought, that's a great thought. Great if it's a great thought. But if it's not, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what the... Like, you know what a, a great thing to say really often in a community group would be? Can you show me that in the Bible? Help me see that in the Bible. Let's talk about where the Bible says that. What's the Bible actually say about that? So that people's feelings aren't the authority and your thoughts aren't the authority, but the Bible's the authority. And that we would all know, hey, sometimes we're going to miss it. Like, sometimes we're going to give in to self and flesh and the fear of man and wanting the praise of people, and we're going to fall back into our old ways. That's what Peter's really doing, is falling back into his old ways. So what happens? Peter's led astray, the Jews are led astray, even Barnabas. Like, like the pillar of the early church. We finally, and thank goodness, right? Like, if Barnabas didn't ever get anything wrong, it would really discourage me. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, so some people don't get anything wrong. Everybody gets stuff wrong, except Jesus. Like, Jesus is the answer, not Barnabas. But, Paul, when I saw that their conduct, and see what's at stake right here, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is why Paul won't tolerate it. I said to Cephas, before them all, it's like, hey, this was a public issue, I'm going to address it publicly. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Like he's just saying, this is the hypocrisy that you're living out right now. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And all he's doing, he's saying, Peter, you know the gospel, and I know the gospel. And the way you're living with the Gentiles right now, by pushing them away and separating yourself from them, is not in line with the gospel. So we also have believed in Jesus. We're not trusting. Like even he, what he's saying is, even we Jews, we're not trusting the Jewish law to save us. We're trusting Jesus to save us. Why in the world would you force the Gentiles to trust the Jewish law? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It won't do it for anyone. It won't do it for the Jews. It won't do it for the Gentiles. And so what I want us to see right here, just these... Jesus alone, Jesus and. The Jesus and leads to hypocrisy. Right? That you say with your mouth, I believe in Jesus. And it's really easy for us to do that in a church setting. And then you live in your life in a way that doesn't reflect that. 
that you don't love people. You aren't in relationships with people in a way that reflects the truth of the gospel. And so what you say on the outside, like say with your mouth, doesn't match what you really are believing on the inside and what you're doing. And that is hypocrisy. That, that's the definition of hypocrisy, that you would say things that are not true for the way you live or true for what you believe. Over here, Jesus alone frees you to authenticity. Because think about just the, the, all the expressions of authenticity we get in this one encounter right here. First of all, Paul is saying, hey, I can go live with the Gentiles now like a Gentile because that's what the gospel means. Like The gospel says this and the gospel sets me free to do this. And so there's consistency between what I say and what I do. That the gospel empowers me to live out the gospel. So there's authenticity there. There's also authenticity in the fact where he's like, I can call Peter out in front of everybody. <laughs> because this, this is huge. Listen, over here, this Jesus and stuff, the hypocrisy, it's fake, right? Because just, you're just saying it, but you don't really mean it. You, your heart and your life don't match up with it. And you're wearing a mask all the time. Because here's what's at stake here. I've got to do things to make myself look better. I've got to look good in front of you because I want praise from you. I want to impress you what you think matters and I'm trying to justify myself and the only way I can do that in your eyes is to show you things about me that look good. So I better keep it all together and I better be polished all the time and I better be impressive all the time. Well, I'm not. I'm not even close. So I can't be honest with you about that. I can't show you that. I've got to cover it up and I've got to be fake all the time. And so when, when leaders are getting it wrong, we can't just acknowledge that and talk through that openly. We've got to hide it and downplay it and pretend it's not happening because what do everybody think if we say, Peter got it wrong? Maybe they'll think that only Jesus is enough and that Peter's not. Maybe they'll think that Peter needs Jesus just like everybody else. Maybe they'll think if Peter gets it this wrong and Jesus still uses him, maybe Jesus will use me. If Jesus has grace for Peter, maybe Jesus has grace for me. That's the authenticity that the gospel frees you to. And then finally, you think about where Paul ends down here. It's the authenticity of him saying, hey, I'm not good enough. I tried the Jewish law thing and I couldn't do it. I couldn't be justified that way. That's why I've come to believe that it's Jesus alone. Like Paul's including here his own confession of, I couldn't do it apart from Jesus either. I know that nobody can. Because Paul tried as hard as anybody. That he was a Pharisee, and according to other parts of the Bible, he was like the Pharisee of Pharisees, advancing faster than anybody of his age. If anybody was keeping the rules, it was Paul, and it wasn't enough. And there's this authenticity where he's free to say, hey, I wasn't enough. I wasn't good enough. I couldn't do enough. I was never going to be enough, and I don't have to pretend with you that I'm enough because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And when Jesus is enough... I'm free to live like Jesus is enough. And I'm free to love like Jesus is enough. And I'm free to give everybody the hope that Jesus is enough. All that in Acts 15. Praise God that he preserved that gospel for us in that moment. That he protected his church. That he filled his people with his spirit 
And he gave them the courage and the wisdom and the boldness to say, no, it is Jesus alone. It is grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. And this is all of our hope and this is all the power for the church and this is the whole message of God and this is how God will do everything he'll do. And he's saying the exact same thing to you and me this morning. It's the same gospel, the same God, the same hope, the same power. And I pray that you'll see Jesus that way. I pray that you will believe him that way. I pray there'll be things in your heart that are set free by the love of God for you for the very first time in your life. And you'll find this new passion and desire to make Jesus known, to actively live out discipleship, for your life to be defined by the gospel, that it won't be something you sing about and it won't be something you say. It'll be something that you live. And yeah, you'll say it. but you'll be explaining, this is why I'm living this way. My life looks different because of the gospel, and you want to know why it looks different? Let me tell you about the gospel. I pray that God does that in his church. I know that he is. He has been for 2,000 years. He's going to keep doing it. So I'm going to ask you to pray that with me right now, and then we're going to worship God. We're going to thank him for what he's done. We're going to confess. You're going to hear it in this first song we sing, a confession of who we really are and a confession of who God is, and let all of our hopes in him. So will you pray with me right now, and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Father, help us not only to say these words, but will you by your Spirit drive them into our hearts that we would truly believe that all of our hope is in you because of your grace alone and that we would come to you with faith alone in Jesus alone. Strip away everything else, everything that's not you and not your gospel, not your Spirit, not your Son, in our lives and in this church and build your church. We need you to do it because only you can. We trust you to do it because we know that you have done it all in Jesus and we ask you to do it because we believe your promises. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.